Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thanks, Dana. Uh, two two quick things. One is I don't understand how the moon is fairer than the sun. So if you do, I would love, I, I'm assuming the song is right, but I, I don't understand it. So if you do, I would love for you to explain that to me later. And then second, I love what Matt says uh, each week before the offering, that if you're a guest, um, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. And that that stems out of this idea that people think churches are just after your money and we're not after your money. And if you're a member somewhere else, we'd rather you gave to your your church. And so you're, you're welcome here is the main point. But at the same time, if um, you're, you're not a, a Christian, for instance, and you're here, we're, we're still glad you're here. But it's the same kind of thing as singing. Uh, as in, these are things God has given us to praise Him. So, as you sing, uh, and you're here, that's that's okay, and and you're welcome to give as well. These are ways that God has given us to demonstrate to Him that we acknowledge that He's God and He's worthy of all that we have. So, maybe that's helpful. Uh, it, but it's the same thing. You, you can't sing to the glory of God if you're not trusting in Jesus, and you can't give an offering. But you're welcome to do both. Uh, as an act of faith. All right. That said, one more, one more sort of more, more sermon text related deal. So this passage introduces some serious questions. Okay. And it does three things with them. One is it answers some of the questions that it introduces. And I, I tend to like that Two, or it tells us what the answer is. Two is it tells us what the answer isn't. And that's okay too. That's kind of neat. It doesn't fully answer what it is, but it, helps us by telling what it is. And and third, it says nothing about some of the questions that it answers. And generally speaking, I'm not real comfortable with that. When when, When I read something like, and Jesus did not entrust himself to them, uh, I want to, I want to pull that apart and answer every piece of that for you all. And, but one of the unique features of preaching through a gospel, John's in particular, is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does that a lot. He he introduces questions in one place that he explains and answers later in telling certain stories of Jesus or recording the teaching of Jesus. And so I guess the main point I'm making this morning is you got to be okay with that. <laughs> uh, and, and I do too. Uh, I mean that. Like each week I, I, I fight wanting to answer more than the text does. And I do a little. I, I, I help you guys out a little bit. But but I want you to have that question ringing in your mind. And I think at least twice in the sermon today, I'll tell you that. I'm going to give you a question that needs to be ringing in your ears as we continue to make our way through John. In fact, this question begins to, or this passage begins to answer a question that has come up before. All right, with all that, we're able to see in these few verses that there's a way to believe in Jesus that is of no benefit at all. Think about that. That's, I'm going to say at a bunch of different times in a bunch of different ways through this text this morning. But if you hear what I just said, that that ought to be a little jarring. That that ought to 
be at least a little unsettling. So I'm going to say it again. We're able to see in these few verses that there's a way to believe in Jesus that is of no benefit at all. Another way to say that same thing, which is the title of the sermon, is that there is a kind of faithless faith. Or a kind of trustless trust. More tragically still, like that's a that's not it's not great. I don't love knowing that, but more tragically still, this passage suggests that many can have benefitless belief without even knowing it. And so that's that's harder to swallow still. This idea of belief that does no good or faithless faith, that I don't that's hard to hear that that's a real category in scripture. But what's harder to hear still is that you don't necessarily know when you have that, as opposed to the authentic kind. So I hope you remember that the overall purpose for which John wrote this gospel is to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ, in order that they would believe in him as the Christ, in order that they would have life, fullness of life, everlasting life. And so to those ends, as we continue to move further into John's gospel, we see that John often forces us to ask why some people. I've said this a few times. He begins the answer today. It becomes even more explicit next week in the beginning of chapter 3. But he forces us to ask, tells stories of people seeing Jesus in miraculous ways and teaching with power. John forces us to ask in telling us the stories he does and providing the commentary that he does, why some people see Jesus. They see him right, right there with them. They hear his teaching. You know, we, we read about it, but they get to hear him personally deliver it and witness his signs. Why do some people have those experiences and have their entire lives changed? While others respond with indifference, anger. Sometimes they're entertained for just a little bit before walking away ultimately unmoved. Let me say that again. As a means of bringing his readers to genuine belief in Jesus, John continually includes passages like ours for this morning to make us wonder where genuine belief comes from. You with me? Does that make sense? How how do you experience Jesus as they did in the passages before and after and have people respond in two completely different ways? It seems to sort of make sense to us that some people would read the Bible and have two different experiences. But man, how in the world could you be with Jesus while he was doing and saying these things and have such different responses? John forces us to ask that question. So while John's gospel has already raised some of these types of questions, it hasn't provided much in the way of answers. Well, beginning with our passage for this morning, that begins to change. In this brief commentary, John plainly states the answer that will show up in Jesus' teaching over and over throughout the gospel. All right, so here are the big ideas and the big implications. The big ideas. Number one, only genuine trust in Jesus, belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, connects us with the saving grace of God. That's, that's right at the heart of the gospel. Only genuine faith, trust, belief in Jesus connects us with the grace of God. And second, this is the key that we'll see over and over and over again. Look at this in the text. Test it against the stories that you encounter in John's gospel and the teaching of Jesus and the explanations given. Here's the second. Only genuine trust in Jesus connects us with the saving grace of God. And second, 
That genuine trust in Jesus comes only from Jesus entrusting himself to us. We also get a a little bit of a glimpse of the interplay between Jesus' human and divine natures. And the main takeaways, I think, from all of this are a fresh reminder of our dependence upon God for all things. We're entirely dependent upon God. Truly in him we live and move and have our being and our salvation and our perseverance in our faith. And ultimately, our glorification and fellowship with God forever and ever and ever. And secondly, from that, a fresh call to be people of unceasing prayer. What do we do if all this is true? And the answer mainly is we go to God in prayer continually. So let's pray that God would help us see and apply this text in every way he means us to. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word in particular. Thank you for this bit of commentary that explains to us What was going on underneath and around what we just saw and are about to see in the stories of what Jesus did and said? What happened as Jesus' ministry unfolded on earth? Thank you for this bit of commentary, this bit of explanation. I pray that we'd get out of it all that you mean us to, that we would be changed by it in every way that you intend. Above all, I pray that you would help us to not just see that we're totally dependent upon you, but love it. Love that. What else would we want than to be completely dependent upon the one who has all power and wisdom and love and authority and goodness and beauty and truth? Why would we want to be dependent upon ourselves or anyone or anything else? And so help us to see that the most natural expression of that is prayer. God, we acknowledge you as God and our need for you in every, every part of our lives. You've called us to listen and obey. You, you use us to accomplish your purposes in some ways on earth, and we should do that and gladly participate. But even in that, we know that the ultimate fruit comes from you. We, we plant, we sow, we, we tend, but you alone bear fruit. So please do that. Do that this morning in us and through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our our passage this morning, if you read it and thought about it at all, or even just listened carefully when it was just read, you notice it's interesting on a number of levels. And one, uh, one interesting aspect is the fact that for just these three verses, John steps away from narrative, and like I just prayed, explains some of what was going on with what we just saw and are about to see. That is, he offers a little bit of commentary. Narrative just describes what was. And he breaks out of that for just a minute to tell us what was going on underneath that. How do we make sense of that? What, what was really happening there? He briefly moves from telling the story of Jesus to explaining it and its implications. So as you probably remember, the previous passage, what do I mean? What's he explaining? What's he commentating on? The previous passage of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, the previous passage in it, he told of Jesus going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, as Jews were meant to do. Tragically, though, when he arrived, again, I assume you're either familiar with this or you were here to hear the sermon, he arrived to find the temple polluted with people attempting to make money by exploiting others. Worse still, as bad as that was, they did it with the approval of the religious leaders. Those meant to, like Kyle said in the exhortation, to know, lead, feed, and protect. They were 
Israel's shepherds, and instead of shepherding the sheep for the good of the sheep, they were taking part in the exploitation of the sheep. Consumed with zeal then, the text tells us, for God's honor, his father's honor, Jesus cleared the temple of all the swindlers who were making a mockery of God and one of Israel's most important celebrations. That's a big deal. In addition to that, look at 23 on the screen. It's, if you have your Bibles open, verse 23, we find that in addition to all of that, this is really important, during that time in Jerusalem, Jesus also performed a number of unrecorded miracles. Do you, do you see that? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. It doesn't tell us what those are. The only one it tells us so far was the water to wine, but that was before he got there. Well, evidently, while he was there, he did some unrecorded signs as well. And the key to all of this is the fact that the crowds who witnessed all of that would have been forced to decide, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? He, he taught like we haven't heard people teach, and he did things that we haven't seen people do. What do we do with this? You can't see the kinds of things done by Jesus and hear the kinds, kinds of claims made by Jesus and not make a decision about him. You know, you walk past dozens, maybe hundreds of people every day. All of us do. Think, think about that or, or drive by them. How many, how many people do you drive by? And you don't need to decide what to do with any of them because they didn't do anything particularly remarkable. You might not even have noticed them. But you can't hear what Jesus said and see what Jesus did and not decide what to do with that. If you're walking around Forest Lake, all right, here's your assignment. After the service today, go on into Forest Lake, walk around, uh, and imagine yourself finding a man levitating off the ground, claiming to be the prince of Egypt. All right, okay. What are you going to do with that? You have to do something. It's a goofy example, I, I know, and that's the point. The, the point is, when you see just people walking by, you don't notice them. If you see a guy levitating, claiming to be the prince of Egypt, you, you have to do something with that. Is he a crazy illusionist? You know, David Blaine style? Is he telling the truth? Something else entirely? You got to decide. And what you decide makes a big difference in how you're going to handle the next 10 minutes. In many ways, John 2, 23 to 25 is really as simple as that. In it, John provides a 10,000-foot commentary on what happened as a result, what and why, what happened and why, as a result of Jesus' words and actions during this particular Passover, Passover feast in Jerusalem. In verse 23, he tells how the people responded, and then probably most provocatively in 24, tells us how Jesus responded to their response. Let's look at both of those things. How did the people respond? And then how did Jesus respond to the response? All right, so here it is again. It's not a levitating prince of Egypt, but zeal for God, fearlessly standing up to corrupt religious leaders, violently putting a temporary stop to exploitation in the temple, teaching with authority and performing miraculous signs. That's what Jesus had just done. How would those who saw or heard such things respond? That's, that's the essence of this passage. Before we get there, let me ask you explicitly. This is, I think it'll become really clear shortly why you need to answer this question for yourself. If you 
You got to imagine never having heard of Jesus, just like these people. You've never heard of Jesus. How do you imagine you'd respond if you were in their shoes? What do you think you'd do if you'd been there to witness these aspects of Jesus' ministry? Again, for reasons that will become clear soon, it's an important question for us to settle on, for ourselves and for the people in our lives. And it's especially important for you to consider if you're not yet sure what to do with Jesus. If you're a kid or a guest or even you've been at Grace for a while, and you're not yet convinced that all of the things the Bible says about Jesus are, are true and, and worthy of ordering your life around. If you're still not yet sure what to do with Jesus, you need to settle right now on this question. If you had been there to see Jesus, to hear him teach the things he taught, and watch him do the miraculous things that he had done, what do you think you would do in response to that? Well, as you're settling on that in your own mind, consider what those present did. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. On the surface, I imagine, if you were thoughtful, like I asked you to be just now, that sounds about right, doesn't it? It's it's sort of what you would expect to, to happen. It's probably what we all imagine we would have done If we had been there, never having heard of Jesus, seeing these things and hearing these things, I think we imagine the natural result is to believe on his name. Isn't that what most skeptics think it would take for them to actually believe? Do you know somebody who's really skeptical of the claims of Christianity, that Jesus is the Son of God who performs miracles and died and rose from the dead to atone for our sins? Do you know somebody who's skeptical of that? Usually, skeptics would say it would take something like this for me to believe. The Bible's interesting, they might say, but so are a lot of other stories from the past. Everyone was a lot more superstitious and naive back then. I have a hard time, the skeptic says, believing most of the, all of the miraculous stories in the Bible, just like I have a hard time believing the Greek myths and the Roman legends. I'm sure that Jesus was a decent enough guy. He probably existed, and he probably was an okay dude. I'm sure he said and did some interesting and profound things, but lots of people have said and done interesting and profound things. i got to be honest. I'd have to see him myself and witness one of his miracles myself before I could ever believe that stuff. Isn't, Isn't that how most skeptics, even us, think at times? Don't you think that? That if, man... I don't know. I think I'd be a lot more serious in my faith if I could walk with Jesus, see some of the things the Bible describes. What was the result of Jesus' actions at the Passover feast recorded in John 2, 13 to 22? What was the result? What did people do? Jesus said and did great things, and those who saw and heard believed in his name. Well, when we combine this with what we've already seen at the beginning of the gospel, uh, you have your Bibles, look at chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, which it seems like is what just happened, he gave the right to become children of God. We combine those two things, it seems like this is great news. It seems like lots of people got saved that day. Well, if that were the end of the story, it would. It would seem like good news. As you know, however, this is not the end of the story. The passage doesn't end in verse 23. 23 tells us one aspect of how the crowds responded, but that leaves us to 
with the question of how Jesus would respond, which actually gives us a better sense of the true nature of their response. So how did the crowds respond? He tells us in some sense they believed in his name. But how would Jesus respond? Verse 24. As you already know, the story quickly takes an interesting turn. Rather than recording, you might think, and, and Jesus was excited, <laughs> and Jesus was glad. And, but rather than recording, Jesus is responding with joy at their belief. John describes Jesus going in a different direction. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That's strange. Well, lost in translation is a key aspect of that, these verses. For reasons I don't really understand. I, I tried to figure this out, but I couldn't. The ESV translates the same word differently in verses 23 and 24. The, the Seeing them the way they are helps us to understand what's really going on here. <clears throat> By doing so, they disguise something important that would have been pretty obvious to the original hearers or readers. In 23, it says that many believed in his name. You see that? The word believed? It says that many believed in his name. In verse 24, it says that Jesus did not entrust. The key word is entrust. Entrust himself to them. The word believed and entrust are the same word. They have the same root in Greek. It's, it's the same word translated faith in the texts that tell us it is by grace you've been saved through faith. A more literal or helpful translation for us would be something like this. Many trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's seeing the two words translated the same way that helps you get the full force of this. Many trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or many believed in his name, but he did not believe in them. Okay, well, what does that mean? What's the point? The point in this brief translation lesson is simply to highlight the fact that there was something off in the belief of the many mentioned in verse 23. It is really true that those who believe in Jesus will be saved. But this passage introduces us to something important. Namely, that it is also really true that there are different kinds of belief and not all have the same effect. Let me try to explain this just a little bit. I thought I actually knew the name. I'm going to tell you, give you an illustration. And this is another question. I, I need a little help on this. Imagine having a container of natural gas. Big, big, giant container, natural gas that's over here. And then two miles away are all the homes that need the gas. All right, so what do, you, what do you do? You got the gas over here, the homes over here. How do you get the gas to the homes? You need some type of conduit. Under ordinary circumstances, I, I, I'm not a, I don't actually know what you would need to be to know how to do this well, but an engineer maybe? I'm not an engineer, uh, but, but under ordinary circumstances, I do, do know you need some kind of pipe to connect those two things. A pipe is the best solution. Now, imagine you're the people that live in these homes. You need this gas. You're looking around. Let's find a pipe. Let's figure this out. Some guy gets excited. He announces that he found one. Everybody digs a trench. This is exactly how it would go, I'm sure. So, you know, come with me here. Uh, dig a trench, bury the pipe, connect the container to the pipe on the one end and the homes on the other. Open up the valve. Everything sounds great. This is just what we were hoping would happen. People excitedly turn and expectedly turn on their furnaces and their hot water heaters, whatever else, but nothing happens. Well, maybe it's just, it's, it's just going slow. Let's wait a little longer. A few days go by, still nothing happens. A pipe was needed to get the gas from where it was to where it needed to be. Pipe is what they had, but the results aren't what they expected. What's the problem? The problem is they installed 
what they installed was now oh, here's what I thought I knew was called, but I, I'm wrong. The kind that you use for like drain tiles when there's holes in it, you know. I thought it was corrugated, but that's not necessarily what this is. Anyway, you know what I mean, right? It's the pipe that you put down and has holes in it. That's what they used. This is my story, so you got to just believe me. That's what they used. They filled a, uh, uh, it's a good pipe. It's, it's for something. It's just not for this. They had a pipe, but it was the wrong kind of pipe. And in this case, it was a worse than useless pipe. Not only did it not get the gas to them, but it allowed it to leak out all over the place. It was a bad situation. Well, that's goofy again, right? But I think it's a good illustration of how salvation works. What do I mean by that? God has an unlimited reservoir of grace produced through Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. We have an unlimited debt of death produced by our sinful nature and choices, and something, some conduit is needed to get the grace of God to the people who need it. That sufficient conduit by God's design is faith, belief, trust. That's exactly what passages like Ephesians 2, 8 teach. For by grace you have been saved. Need salvation over here? We have grace over here. What's the conduit? It is through faith. That's important. You're not saved by faith. Don't, don't believe that. You're saved by grace, saved by grace through faith. The conduit is the faith. All right, well, get this, Grace. Like our illustration, one I gave you just a minute ago, points out not all kinds of faith, belief, or trust are the same. There is a kind that sufficiently carries the grace of God and a kind that does not. In some ways, the study of human history, certainly the Old Testament, but in some ways, the study of human history is about experimenting, people experimenting with conduits other than that which God has given. That's what religion is. It's, it's an attempt to make a conduit from God and, and, and what we need from him with where we are. That's, that's what human history is, is just fake conduits being tried all over the place and failing. One of the most consistent New Testament themes is that good works is an insufficient conduit, right? That's... Largely what the New Testament is about is you, you cannot be saved by works. Likewise, there's an insufficient, insufficient kind of belief that even demons have in Shudder, James tells us. And evidently, there is an insufficient kind that many of the people who witnessed Jesus at the Passover had. There's a type of belief, but it wasn't the kind that was a sufficient conduit to carry the grace of God. Again, that means there is a kind of faithless faith of unbelieving belief, of trustless trust. That's the belief. That, that is what I, I grew up with. I never didn't believe in God. I always thought of myself as a, a Christian, mainly because I wasn't anything else. I didn't know that, I, or I don't know that I consciously disagreed with anything that was true of the gospel. I believed, but it was a kind of insufficient belief filled with holes. It was a kind that was unable to carry the grace of God to me. It was a belief that was bored with God and burdened by the things of God. It was a kind of belief that didn't want to go to hell but wasn't very impressed with heaven. It was a kind of belief that preferred sin even with the basic realization that I shouldn't. I, I know I shouldn't, but I do. It was a kind of belief that imagined that if I could actually see Jesus or one of his miracles, I'd be a much better Christian. All of this leads naturally to a handful of questions. 
Let me give you five questions. I, I sort of answer some because the text does, and I, I sort of don't answer others, but point you ahead to when John does. But here are the five questions. How do we know the people of verse 23 had insufficient faith? I'm saying they did. How do we know that? Second, how did Jesus know they had insufficient faith? Number three, what kind of faith or belief or trust then is sufficient? Number four, where does that come from? In five, in light of number four, who does Jesus entrust himself to? So let me, let me just briefly address each of those questions. How do we know the people of verse 23 had insufficient faith? We know because Jesus receives all who believe on his name, and he did not receive these people. That's, that's the reason we know this. That's the thrust of 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. The point is that whatever the people believed about their belief in Jesus, maybe they knew it was fake and maybe they didn't, it wasn't genuine belief or Jesus would have entrusted himself to them. That's a promise God's word and John's gospel repeatedly makes. Well, how did Jesus know? that the people of verse 23 didn't have sufficient faith. That, that idea leads to another question. How did, how did Jesus know this? Did he overhear something they said? Did he hear them kind of clamoring off in the distance? Did he get some kind of report from his disciples? Maybe some of the disciples knew these people that were claiming to believe and, and knew that they didn't really. It tells us. But on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew, for he himself knew what was in man. I'll come back to how this is possible at the very end. But the simple fact is that Jesus knew their hearts supernaturally. He knew their hearts. He knew that their belief was not genuine because he knew them even better than they knew themselves. Better what he knew better what they thought and felt and believed. He knew the text tells us perfectly what was really in them. All right, well then, what kind of belief or trust or faith is sufficient? If whatever they had wasn't, what kind is? The passage doesn't directly give us the answer to this question, but it does imply it. We're told that Jesus did not entrust himself to the many who believed because he knew their hearts, because he knew what was in them. And the implication is that what was in them was counterfeit or fake or phony. Therefore, the implied answer to the question is that sufficient belief or faith or trust is an authentic belief or faith or trust. The question then is, where does that come from? How do we get that? The whole point of the next section of John's Gospel, the story of Nicodemus, is to answer that question explicitly. While this passage only indirectly answers that question, its main contribution is to help us to see where it does not come from. Contrary to popular belief, faithful faith, believing belief, and trusting trust does not come from three things. Number one, it does not come from seeing Jesus. If he were to walk in this room today, that would not be sufficient for you to believe. Seeing Jesus was not enough to produce genuine belief. How many people have thought that this is all that they would need? If only I could see Jesus with my own eyes, maybe touch him with my own hands. Remember Thomas, one of his disciples who walked with them the whole time. I believe that's what people think. The crowd had that, but that was not enough for genuine belief. Second, hearing Jesus teach was not enough to produce genuine belief. Maybe you know someone who has thought, again, I'm, I'm glad for the Bible, 
but I know I would obey better. I, if Jesus were to come and, and tell me more directly, just tell, tell me directly what he wants from me, then I'd obey. Well, the crowds had that, but they still didn't obey. Thirdly, seeing Jesus perform miracles was not enough by itself to bring about genuine belief. There are, there are others still who know that merely seeing and, and hearing Jesus probably isn't enough. Grace, just think about this. By all accounts, Jesus wasn't a lot to look at. Never, never once does anyone comment, other than in the transfiguration and a bit after his glorification, but never once does anyone comment, wow, he's really good looking or really tall or strong. or No one ever comments on his appearance. It seems by all accounts, he was ordinary looking. So what is seeing him going to do And in the, in the same way? I don't know. He he said he said some said some stuff, but lots of people said some stuff, and it was pretty provocative in some ways. But lots of people say provocative things. What would really make the difference? Some people reason. What would really make me believe is to see him perform a miracle, to do something impossible that just cannot be explained by anything other than him being God. Well, the crowds had this too, didn't they? But they did not believe. Again, one of the most significant aspects of John's commentary in these few verses is that it dispels the lie that any of these things by themselves is sufficient to produce genuine belief. Get, get this. All of this is hinted at in 23. Get this, Grace. If coming to saving faith in Jesus were as simple as seeing him in person, which we've all wanted to do, as hearing his teaching, which I'm sure we would all like to hear, or as witnessing a miracle, the text would not say many believed in his name. It would say everyone believed in his name. If those were sufficient, all people would have believed. So even the fact that a lot believed in some capacity still helps us to see that none of those things by themselves are enough. As verse 23 suggests, verse 24 makes explicit. Something more than simply seeing and hearing these things for ourselves is necessary for genuine belief. If we'll slow down enough to really consider this grace, it's pretty staggering. I invite you to ask God to properly impress you with this. If you do, and he will, it will keep you from chasing the wind as you look to God. It'll make your evangelism better. It'll make your prayers deeper. It'll help and you grow in Christ in many ways. It will help you truly appreciate the story of Nicodemus next week. The reason I'm spending a whole week on these few verses is largely to set us up well for next week. Well, if not from these three places, not from seeing Jesus directly, hearing him teach personally, or watching him perform a miracle, where then does faithful faith, believing belief, and trusting trust come from? Well, the answer is it comes from Jesus. It is a remarkable thing to realize that it is the grace of Jesus to die in our place on the cross and the grace of Jesus that allows us to trust in that grace. They're both the gift of God through Jesus. In simplest terms, the kind of faith sufficient to carry the grace of God is the kind of faith that results from Jesus entrusting himself to us. So who does Jesus entrust himself to is the last question that because this passage doesn't answer this question at all, I won't say much. I mainly included it for two reasons. One is because it's an obvious question that we all need to ask, and we all need to search the scriptures for answers to. 
And I want to acknowledge that I know that. <laughs> I want you to acknowledge that you should know that. This is an important question. It just tells us that he didn't, but it doesn't tell us here who he doesn't trust himself to. So again, we need to see the importance of finding the answer to that question. Well, I also included it to make sure you have it. This is another one of those to have in the back of your mind as we make our way through John's gospel. John provides more commentary like this that answers the question more explicitly, and Jesus, in his life and teaching, reveals it plainly as well, and again, beginning especially with next week. If you do, if you do keep it in your mind as we work through John's Gospel, you'll see different aspects of the answer all over the place. For instance, just this morning in my quiet time, I read John 14. In it, we see that Jesus entrusts himself to those who believe that he and the He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. He entrusts himself, in John 14, to those who love him and obey his commands. That's one way in which Jesus answers that question. On a deeper level still, as I said in John 3 next week, we'll see that Jesus entrusts himself to those who have been born again. Ultimately, we learn, makes it most explicit in John 6. He entrusts himself to all that the Father has given him. That's what Jesus says in John 6. There's mystery and many more questions that come out of these things, but I think you'll see that. You let the text guide you. Jesus and John teach them, and two, they are both fine with this mystery and these added questions. Grace, only genuine trust in Jesus, connects us with the saving grace of God, and genuine trust in Jesus comes only from Jesus entrusting himself to us. The main practical implications, again, for these things is prayer. Let us be a people who recognize this and go quickly to our knees, turn quickly to prayer with others. Make it a habit to come to prayer on Wednesdays. I'm thankful that some of you do. I'd love for more of you to come on Wednesdays. Budget your lunch hour if you can around being here at noon. If not here, somewhere else, that's great. Make it a habit to come to DG, your discipleship group, discipleship group with prayer requests ready to share. Don't try to think of them on the spot. I'm guilty of that. I'm, I'm really bad. And my memory's bad, so it's not a good combo. Keep a list of people in your life who do not believe in Jesus and plead with Jesus to entrust himself to them as you share the gospel with them. Our job is to proclaim the good news that all people can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus and then pray earnestly that God would grant that faith. So I want to close by briefly drawing your attention to one more thing I want in the back of your minds throughout the gospel. What is the relationship between Jesus' divine and human natures? It's a, it's a really important question in two ways. Number one, if you don't settle on the nature of that relationship, you're going to not be able to make sense of a bunch of passages in John. And secondly, positively, if you are able to settle on that relationship, with which the gospel helps us with, you'll find tremendous help in life. So I want to introduce this to you really quickly. He, Jesus is truly God, and he is truly man, but how exactly do those two natures relate to one another? Clearly, by taking on flesh, some of his divine nature is not fully expressed. What I mean by that is, one aspect of God's nature is being omnipresent. In his physical body, Jesus can't be everywhere always. That's that's one thing that I mean, that the gospel helps us to see. In another sense, we know that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. How in the world is that possible for one who is all-knowing in his nature to grow in knowing? 
We learn in Matthew, for instance, in Mark, that there's a way in which his own return has been hidden from him during his time on earth. At the same time, however, there are passages that we'll see over and over, including the ones that we have for this morning, that show Jesus expressing aspects of his divinity. How did he know? He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew all people. He didn't need anyone to tell him about themselves or anyone else. He knew their hearts better than they did. He knew, But the question is, how did he know? How did he know that, but seemingly not know certain other things? How could, it be, how could he be God, but still die? How could he be holy in his divine nature, but still tempted, we're told, in his human nature? Again, we'll see the answer with increasing clarity as we make our way through John. And in that, we'll find a great deal of help if we can see it. For now, though, Grace, and in conclusion, let us praise God. Let us praise the Father, let us praise the Son, and let us praise the Spirit. Let's praise each person of the Godhead for granting us life and salvation. Let's praise the Father for his love, which John tells us, and willingness to send the Son. Let's praise the Son for humbling himself by taking on flesh, which we're moving quickly towards our celebration of an Advent and Christmas, in order to be our example and then suffer and die and rise from the dead on our behalf. And let's praise the Spirit for giving us eyes to see, for causing us to be born again, as we'll see in John chapter 3, granting us genuine belief in Jesus and holding us in the faith. Let's praise God for these things.